Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to um, Deuteronomy chapter 33, the last Torah portion of the book of Deuteronomy and the last Torah portion for the whole Torah, for the writings of Moses. And uh, the first words of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1, begin with these words. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. This is the blessing is in the Hebrew, Vesot Ha-Baraka, and this is the blessing. Um, I don't know if I have really emphasized it enough in the teaching of the Torah portions, but one of the shall we say, unwritten rules of the teaching of the Torah, uh, particularly when you read Scripture in the teaching, one of the great traditions of teaching of the Torah is is that uh, whatever Torah portion is being taught, that the last words that are shared, that the last uh, verses that are read of any Torah portion should always end, shall we say, on a positive note. It should, should always end... Uh, on a blessing of some sort. And in fact, there are certain readings uh, of the Torah portion in which that when you read the words, if it will end on, say, on a note of, say, destruction or judgment, that they will go ahead, the reader will go ahead and read another verse out of the passage that was of something positive and will conclude the reading or the teaching with this positive thing. And part of this is based upon that this is the way Moses ended the teaching of the Torah, that uh, although uh, in the previous two portions before this we talked of God's prophetic message of judgment to come upon Israel, Israel would misbehave, uh, things of that nature, and then ending with the, the subject of the, uh, in the Song of Moses, the previous teaching, uh, this great prophetic message to the last generation of Israel. Uh, in this temporal state. But to conclude the Torah and to conclude this book, Moses again shifts his gears, so to speak, to the blessing. And we also know this is the end of the life of Moses, that these are the last words that were spoken by Moses uh, for his life. And now we need to set the stage for this whole scene. Moses is is assembled there uh, with the children of Israel, and they've literally formed a procession line kind of leading up toward the mountain. Uh, The various tribes have lined on either way, and so he's walking up to the mountain where he will die, and he's walking by these various tribes of Israel, and he's rendering a blessing to them. Uh, You know, as as someone who would be departing, and your friends are lined up, and as you go by each one, you you stop, you you, uh, render a blessing or a comment to them, you say your goodbyes uh, to them in a proper way. And this is a series of goodbye messages uh, from Moses to each of them, speaking um, a blessing to them as he would depart. Now, if you recall back in the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, this is exactly what Jacob did with the sons of Israel. As he was coming to the end of his life, he was rendering a blessing to the tribes of Israel um, as he departed. And in those blessings, there was a kind of a prophetic message of sort, he was the you know, Jacob was looking forward uh, into time as to what would be happening with him. Well, Moses is doing the same now 
with the children of Israel, and he's rendering his blessing upon all of Israel, you know, tribe by tribe by tribe. And as so as we go into chapter 33, we see the individual blessings that are going to be rendered upon the tribes, even as Jacob rendered blessings unto his sons, uh, the tribes of Israel. But the procession is as he's walking up the mountain, he's going to render these blessings to them. And then when he gets up on top of the mountain, he turns and he looks to the promised land and he sees it for the final time and he speaks to that. And so he then renders the blessing of God. He, he blesses the Lord for the land and things like that. So with that as a setting, uh, let us proceed into some of the initial words in in Deuteronomy chapter 33 as he begins to render the blessing. Follow along with me, um, excuse me, from verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand were flashes lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All thy holy ones are in, in thy hand, and they followed in thy steps. Everyone receives of thy words. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered and the tribes of Israel together. Now, this initial set of words that are given in chapter 33 are almost written in the third person. It doesn't sound like the words that Moses uh, wrote, uh, but rather is a very extremely majestic um, third person presentation of what is about to take place. And I want to really give uh, spend a little time with that so that you get the sense of the majesty uh, of the final portion of the Torah. The Lord came from Sinai. In the case of the children of Israel, that's when they first heard his voice. That's when they first received his commandments. They received their covenant from God there. But it was also from Sinai that Moses himself had his first real encounter with the Lord in the form of the burning bush from Mount Sinai. And then he was instructed to go get the sons of Israel and bring them back to the mountain. And dawned on them from Seir, Mount Seir, is the region there um, in the lower Jordan, closest to the border of Israel, south of the, jo- of the uh, Dead Sea. And that mountain range there is the air- area where the people of the east, uh, the sons of Abraham, were to have lived. That's also the area where Esau was to have settled. It was the area known as the King's Highway. And Mount Seir, dawn, it meaning that that's where the dawn of the day came from, that um, that the sun rises from that direction and shone forth from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is over in the land of Israel. So the majesty is giving here of the sun rising and setting uh, that the Lord's, you know, in their comings and in their goings. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones uh, and his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Um, in the midst of the 10,000 holy ones means the heavenly host. He's the Lord of hosts, and that uh, he had many that were with him uh, when he shone forth to Israel. In his right hand was flashing lightning for them. And there's a very interesting um, interpretation that is done here. Depending on which version of the Bible that you have, 
uh, there's different scholars who will try to try to define this a little a little bit differently. For the words flashing lightning, some, for example, I believe King James uses the term a fiery law for them, or even streams of light. And so you have these three adjective uh, descriptions and that, that the word is all speaking to, but different translators to wrestle with. Lightning, uh, fiery law, and streams. Now, there's a big difference between streams and fire, or lightning. There's a there's a very large difference between the two of them. And one of the things I would like to point out to you is, is that the, what is the basis um, for why there should be this confusion about this? And it really goes all the way back to the story of the Exodus and the eighth plague of the hail that had fire. Uh, this is where this originates. Uh, I know a little basic chemistry, and I'm sure you're familiar with this as well. Fire will melt ice, and ice will produce water, which puts out the fire. It's like the fire and the ice shouldn't exist. The fire and water can't exist together at the same time. But in the Lord, they do. In the Lord, um, more importantly, it is possible for the mercy of God to exist at the same time as the justice of God. Now, mercy, it seems, would nullify justice, and justice would nullify mercy, just as the fire would nullify ice and the water would nullify the fire. But only in God are these things possible. And what he's saying about the majesty of God, and in his right hand, it seems to be things which are impossible to us, but they're there. Every bit is true uh, there with it. Flashing of lightning, the fiery law, and streams. Uh, they seem to be contradictory, but they in fact do exist. And that's part of the reason why they have a, a little struggle with it. If I was to have to put my vote in on which one that I would try to offer, it probably I would lean more toward um, the fiery law. Um, because to me, a law um, is life-giving. Uh, that you can't have um, you can't have sense or order of the Lord without His commandments. You can't have life and health without the law. And at the same time, I realize it's restrictive uh, to a certain extent. And this restriction does not choke out the life. This restriction, in fact, guides life and causes life to succeed. In the same way, I believe that that's what His right hand is always doing for us that it's the right hand which is giving life in itself, but it's also the right hand of his justice uh, for us. So it's the right hand of forgiveness and mercy, the right hand of justice. They happen all at the same time. But it's a very interesting language, very interesting wording. It may be one of the weaknesses of our language uh, to not have a word in our language that, that conveys uh, this somewhat paradoxical but yet exists meaning um, for us. The uh, very next verse, uh, verse 3, indeed he loves the people, and the contrast is put there, even though his right hand has this, indeed he loves the people, and all thy holy ones are in thy hand, and they followed in thy steps, everyone receives of thy word. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And the word possession there means an inheritance or a heritage that's what we possess. I try to teach people um, in the Torah that these are not just Jewish feasts and Jewish commandments. These are biblical commandments and biblical feasts, and that this biblical heritage belongs to all peoples. 
who will trust the Lord. It's not just to the physical descendants of uh, Jacob uh, that it was God's plan from the very beginning that in the in the seed of in the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would all the families of the earth be blessed. And it's in the biblical heritage of faith and God and his commandments uh, that we are all recipients, Jew and Gentile, it doesn't make any difference, that we all receive that. And the New Covenant tries to emphasize this, that the Messiah is the Messiah for all peoples, that he's the God of God of all peoples uh, for it. This does not mean he's not the God of Israel. It means that he's the God of Israel and the God of the nations. He's the God of all for it. And the the testimony of God is he loves all the people, all of them, not just one nation, and that all those who would follow him, you know, would be the recipients of it, including the assembly of Jacob. Um, One of the great uh, mistakes of religious leaders that I believe, and it's a mistake that extends all the way back to the Pharisees and Sadducees as religious men go, and that is the mistake of exclusion. Um, Some people, when they get the essence of this is what is included, then they use that as the definition to exclude others. And this was certainly the case that Israel made in its religious leadership in that they built the middle wall of partition, that they believed that only, only Israel you know, is God's economy, God's order. And to this day, even the church has picked up on that, and they think the same way. Now, I'm not suggesting that other religions, such as Buddhist or any of the other things, or pagan rituals are to be included. Uh, rather, what I'm trying to say is, is, that, is that God's purposes and intents are toward the whole world and not exclusively to a separate um, group. Um, now, those, if the church means... All, of all of the nations who are called out, then yes, that's what I mean. That's, that is true. But the nature of some teachers uh, to talk about the church in lieu of Israel, I believe, is, is, is just as big a mistake as the religious leaders in Israel who used to exclude the Gentiles. Uh, I believe that's equally a mistake as well. Uh, Moses now begins the, the transition up, and he begins to bless uh, the various tribes. Of Reuben, he says in verse 6, may Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. And this is a Hebrew idiom, you know, is uh, long live Reuben, you know, is another way we could say it. That's what he's saying to Reuben. Reuben was one of the smaller tribes, and in the course of the uh, wilderness experience, actually diminished in a few numbers. And uh, because of their size, as compared to others, Moses says, may their men be, uh, nor may their men be few. May they not run out of, out of, uh, uh, of the tribe of Reuben. Of Judah, he says, and this regarding Judah, so he said, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his, hand, when, with his hands he contended for them, and mayest thou be a help against his adversaries. The tribe of Judah had the interesting uh, task of being the first one into battle. If Israel got into a war, it was the tribe of Judah who had to first engage the enemy. They were the vanguard force um, when they fought. And what it's saying here is is that it's recognizing that they would contend uh, for Israel when he goes to war. In other words, all of this is when he goes to war, 
Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. It actually means bring him back to his people. Any person who goes in the military and goes off to a war, one of his prayers that's under his breath, whether he says it overtly, directly, or whether he does it indirectly, is, Oh, Lord, I hope I come back. I'm going to go to this war, and I hope I come back. Well, he's offering essentially that prayer, recognizing that Judah would be in battle many times. Uh, you know, Lord, whatever the battle does, I hope I come back. With his hands he contended for them. In other words, he fought the war for Israel. Mayest thou be a help against his adversaries. Help him when he's in the battle, Lord, uh, for the tribe of Judah. Verse 8, And of Levi, he said, Let thy Thuman and thy Urim belong to thy godly man, whom thou didst prove at Massa, with whom thou didst contend at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed thy, thy word and kept thy covenant. Uh, this first part has to, it's a little play on it of something that happened back in the wilderness. At the base of the mount, when Moses returned with the tablets, and they had set up the golden calf, and he threw the tablets down, Moses went to the tabernacle. And there he stood and he says, whoever's with the Lord, let him come with me. And a whole bunch of guys from the tribe of Levi came. He told them to fill their hand with the swords and they went out and they slew every person who had sacrificed to the golden calf. They did not regard their father, their mother, their brother, their family members. If Even if they were the tribe of Levi, Levi went out and carried out the justice of the Lord uh, as directed by Moses. And because of that, because of their zeal uh, to obey the Lord and choosing the Lord, the Lord is now giving them through Moses for them to have the Thuman and the Urim. These were the uh, the lighted stones. These were the things kept in the high priest's uh, ephod. And then if you wanted to ask of God's will that you brought them forth, and there was a lighted stones and then either a uh, an affir- affirmation of something or a declination of something. Um, you could ask the Lord, uh, you know, a key question, should we pursue the enemy in the battle? Yes or no, Lord. And then they would cast them, the stones forth. And if the stones were lighted, meaning that God had given an answer, then we look to either the, yeah, the affirmation or the declaration. Yes or no, uh, would be the course of this. David used these in pursuing the, the Philistines in battle. And they were also used in the affirmation of the in the absence of ancestral records uh, when the remnant of Judah returned. Who was given the responsibility of the Urim and Thummim? It was given to the high priest of the Levi, of the Levitical tribes. And, the, and Moses is saying the reason why it's being given to them, this part of this inheritance given to them, is because when it came to choices, they chose the Lord over even their own sons, their own brothers, their own father, and their own mother, that they chose the Lord. Therefore, verse 10, they shall teach thine ordinances to Jacob and thy law to Israel. They shall put incense before thee and hold burnt offerings on thine altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they may not rise again. In other words, he's putting the anointing and the authority upon the priesthood of Israel to be the teachers of the law, to be the determinant. And that's the reason why that the Sanhedrin council of Israel was made up of many Levites. That's the reason why that the Levites were given the duty and the responsibility to teach the law and the keeping of the commandments to the children of Israel, and they taught right from the temple uh, in so keeping. 
And so this charge is given unto them by Moses. Verse 12, of Benjamin, he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. The um, uh, Benjamin lived down in um, the territory just north of Judah. And in fact, not too many people know this, but the Temple Mount itself actually straddles the territory of Benjamin and the territory of Judah. The courts of Israel are in Judah, but the Holy of Holies set sets in Benjamite territory. And so this expression, and he dwells between his shoulders, or the head uh, of, the, uh, of where the Lord would dwell, would be there in Benjamite territory, as it later turned out to be. Uh, God always knew he was going to choose a place in the land of Israel where the permanent temple would go, the city of Jerusalem would be. And here's Moses saying that Benjamin is going to receive one of the honors, and the honor being that the Holy of Holies would be in Benjamite territory as opposed to the territory of Judah. Verse 13, And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath, with the choice yield of the sun and the choice produce of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let it come to the head of Joseph and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With him, with them he shall push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those of the thousands of Manasseh. Now this is more in line with what you would expect a blessing to be. I mean, it sounds like the choice, the best things, and so forth. This is the blessing. In fact, it's a repetition of Moses explaining to us about the birthright blessing. If you remember in the story of from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob, why the issue over the uh, sons that were born there was who gets the blessing, who gets the birthright blessing. Uh, there was a dispute between Ishmael and Isaac, uh, and it was uh, Isaac who received the blessing because of she, he was the son of promise, uh, born of Sarah that it was uh, Jacob over Esau. Although Esau was firstborn, uh, it was God's will that Jacob would receive the birthright blessing, that Esau hated his birthright, and therefore the Lord hated him. And uh, therefore the blessing, he actually sold the blessing uh, to his brother. And uh, through the story of, of the blessing, and so it was passed to Jacob. Now Jacob later on, uh, which son was he to give it to? Was it to Reuben, the firstborn? Maybe Judah, you know, which was a great tribe of Israel. As it turns out, it was Joseph. And this was the reason for the disputing between Joseph and his brethren was over this blessing. This birthright blessing is, in its simplest form, the best of everything. That's what the blessing is. And that's what Moses puts upon Joseph here, that he would have the choice of the sun, the best produce of the months, the best things of the mountains, the choice things of the everlasting hill, the choice things of the earth. He gets the best of it. And if you recall, in the story of Jacob's blessing 
upon the sons of Israel, going all the way back to Genesis 49, that the first blessing he put upon was the sons of Joseph, literally elevated and made Joseph's sons to be equal as the tribes. And Ephraim and Manasseh, the twin tribes, uh, were raised to the rank of uh, Judah and Reuben and Gad and the others. Uh, in fact, Ephraim became the leader of the, of the house of Israel and the northern tribes in opposition to uh, Judah later on. This blessing, birthright blessing, and comes down to verse 17. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. And uh, there's an interesting, um, for those of you who may study um, the special meanings of um, the letters and Hebrew words, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is an aleph. Uh, the letter A, and it's modeled after, if you go back into the ancient uh, uh, meanings of the letter, it's modeled after an ox, meaning the strength, the great strength. The first letter is with great strength. So literally when it says here, as the firstborn of the ox, he's talking about that same understanding that comes from the strength of the ox, or like the first letter of the alphabet, which is what it's modeled after. Let me give you an example of how some of that works, and I don't want to necessarily get into it so much, as I just want you to have a sense of that there is great wisdom and teaching and meaning in um, some of these uh, deeper things. There's a book out called uh, Hebrew Word Pictures, which is available that goes into some detail teaching this, and I'm going to make reference to some of that to, to show you as to how this ties in. The letter Aleph... Uh, means of great strength, or like the strength of an ox. In fact, the way the letter is actually formed, it's trying to make a very simplistic uh, image of an ox. Uh, and I don't have a, a diagram that I can show you here at the moment, but take my word for it that that's what it's meaning. The um, Let me pick another letter, the letter Lamed, uh, which is the L uh, phonetic sound which is in the middle of the alphabet, and it's the tallest of all of the letters, Hebrew letters. Aleph and Lamed make the Hebrew word El, or God, the simplest form of God. The Lamed is the symbol for a shepherd's staff, uh, you know, the tall staff that a shepherd would use to go around and guide his sheep. So... The L, in its greater, deeper meanings, means the strong shepherd or the strength of the shepherd. Um, you know, that, that's what it means. And we know that God is a great shepherd over his flock. So L is emphasizing the shepherding, the great shepherd aspect of our God to us. And each of the letters tells a very fascinating a uh, word picture for us about its deeper meaning. And that's what Moses is really trying to do here. He's trying to say, will the strength of the first letter of the alphabet uh, be, a, be upon Joseph? And, and uh, may he have the strength, uh, this great strength that comes from the letter Aleph, the strength of the ox. And I want you also to draw a note to the very last two phrases there, those of the ten thousands of Ephraim. That's really an understatement. What the, in the Hebrew, what it's really trying to bring up, the myriads, the millions of Ephraim versus the, uh, versus the thousands of Manasseh. It's not just ten times greater 
Ephraim and the blessing over Manasseh, it is even greater than that blessing is. Now, 10,000 to the thousands brings about part of the concept, but the, in the Hebrew, it's even a stronger meaning, meaning the myriads or the millions of Ephraim to Manasseh. In verse 18, he speaks of Zebulun, and he says, And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. And he hooks the two of them together, Zebulun and Issachar together. Verse 19, They shall call peoples to the mountains, for they shall offer righteous sacrifices, for they shall draw out of the abundance of the sea and hidden treasures of the sand. And there's a comparison thing that's being done here. There's Zebulun is being compared to Issachar, as much as the call of the peoples to the mountains is being done by Zebulun's to offer righteous sacrifices by Issachar, to draw from the abundance of seas uh, by Zebulun and the hidden treasures of the sand by Issachar. There's this parallel being set up, and here's what it really is based upon. Zebulun was highly successful, as we'll find out later, as merchants, that they were business people, and they were very successful in that region of the country. In fact, up in the land of Zebulun was where the famous Phoenicians, who were world famous for their trading powers, uh, merchant powers, uh, by way of sea. Zebulun was very involved in that process. Zebulun, uh, the people were up there associated with that. Issachar, on the other hand, it speaks of the tents of Issachar where it says, an Issachar in your tents. But these are not just any tents. These are special tents. These are tents for the study of Torah, for the study of God's Word. And this is the interesting contrast that you have pictured between the blessing of Zebulun and the blessing of Issachar. And it comes down to simply this. One is the provider of material resources, and the other is the provider of spiritual resources. In the case of Zebulun, their business was successful. They were able to raise materialistic uh, revenue. In the case of Issachar, they were the great teachers of the Torah. And there are other instances where they are known later on in the history of Israel as being great scholars in the teaching of it. Now, we just got through reading about Levi was the one who would be responsible for doing it. And, it, and the comparison is this way. Whereas Levi and, the, and uh, the sons of Aaron were specifically charged with the responsibility of the temple and the temple service um, and the animal sacrifices, it is Issachar who was given the, uh, the authority to teach from the Torah to teach about the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, uh, things that you do with your mouth when you would go in and worship the Lord with your mouth and with your hands. Uh, before it without a sacrifice. And I think that that's the real essence, because the fact is, is that if you go in and just sacrifice with animals and you don't uh, issue up worship from your heart, it's in vain. And the prophets later on spoke of this. They spoke of, uh, I, the Lord, I'm tired of your your, uh, your goats and, and bulls. You know, what I desire is mercy. And so it's Issachar who was given the charge to be the teachers of the Torah to teach the weightier matters of the law, like faithfulness, mercy, justice, of those kinds of things. The Levites could answer your specific questions with regard to the rightness of a sacrifice, of purification, things like that. But what's the real teaching? It would come from Issachar. And it's from this same region that the Messiah would come forth declaring us the word of God, not from Jerusalem, but from up in the area of where Issachar used to live. 
would be the area that his ministry would begin from as well as he would come teaching the Word of God. And today, this is still just as true in a community. In a, in a simple community of faith, there has to be really two components for it to be successful. There must be those who are committed to the business world, who are able to provide the material resources, so that he who provides the spiritual resources is able to minister to the one who's providing the material resources so that his life has value and is enriched. If you just go out and you just have material resources, you're going to have a pretty dull, dumb, and boring life. Uh, and riches is not the key to happiness. But at the same time, if you have know all the things of the Lord, but yet you don't have the cooperation to get the material resources, your life also will be less than satisfying as well. Um, we have people who, uh, who go out and who believe that just working very hard, workaholics who work very hard, um, and uh, to provide for their families and so forth, that somehow this is the essence of life. It's, it's not. It's part of it, but you're never going to be satisfied. I, at the same time, I know certain people who think, oh, well, let's just go out and study the Word of God, and let's, you know, and they forget all the material stuff and providing for a home and providing for security for their family, and that's just as dissatisfying. It's the combination of two. In a community of fellowship, you have those who will be committed to providing the material resources, those who are providing the spiritual resources. They both need each other uh, for them to be successful as a community. And the teaming up the blessing is given between Zebulun and Issachar here by the mouth of Moses. And of Gad, he said, blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, from there, the ruler's portion was preserved, was reserved, and he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. Gad was one of the tribes that approached um, uh, Moses and said, well, we're the keeper of cattle, and this land here in the Jordan Valley is actually ideal for cattle. And rather than going across the River Jordan into the land, we would prefer to choose this ground for us. The, uh, and Moses wanted to be careful about you know, what they were doing, but they assured him and gave commitment, and they fulfilled it, of crossing over the River Jordan and helping the other tribes to get their ground also. So they went to battle, and they fought uh, for their brothers and the other tribes for their land, but they chose first the land in which they wanted to be. And what is being explained here by Moses is, this is like the rule from, from there the ruler's portion was reserved, and he came with the leaders of the people. What he's saying is this. When, when you go to battle and you're in the army, uh, the commander of the army, when he comes in and you decide to make camp, the commander gets to have any place uh, to camp that he chooses. If he wants to be over by these trees or he wants to be by the water, or he, want, he gets to have his choice. I don't care if some soldiers did camp there. If they camp there and he says, well, that's the ground I want to camp out, everybody else moves out and the commander gets it. Well, in the same way he's saying of the blessing of Gad is they get the rulers or the, the champion or the commander's choice. That where they choose to be is where they're permitted to go. And in exchange, they have been willing to go over and fight for their brothers' uh, right as well. So that's the blessing that's being rendered there. Verse 22. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Basham. 
uh, a very famous Danite was Samson. And uh, they, most scholars believe that these words are really being fulfilled in the life of Samson, that Samson was a very important judge uh, in the life of Israel. And it was Samson who was like a lion who sprang forth uh, from Basham. It, they, nobody could control Samson. Even, even uh, Israel couldn't control Samson, let alone the Philistines. And uh, so he was like, he was like a lion. You know, basically a lion goes wherever he wants to go, and he, if he wants to, you know, go into those rocks and then jump out of those rocks at you, he, he has the right to do it. You're not going to stop him, but you're going to have to deal with it. And so Moses' blessing here seems to speak of that authority, of that ability to do that. Verse 23, And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea and the south. And Naphtali came to be known um, as having a very good growing area, satisfied with favor. Um, and uh, they were very famous. Uh, I believe that Naphtali had the area of um, where they uh, were able to grow great crops. And uh, whenever you grow in a basic necessity like that, why they have favor for it. And this is what follows along when it says of Asher. And of Asher, he said... More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil, and your locks shall be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so shall your leisurely walk be. Now, some I have heard tried to indicate that this is some sort of a prophecy, said there would be oil found in the land of Israel. There may be oil found in the land of Israel, but what this specifically has to do with is that Asher came known to be as the keeper of olive trees. Now, in the land of Israel, and as in the ancient peoples, whoever had uh, olive oil, you had one of the basic necessities of life. This was the fuel for a lamp. This was the basic cooking ingredient for bread. This is the basic cooking ingredient for all food. And this is like an essential product that everyone has to have. I've always said that the greatest business to be in is to own something that everybody has to have. It's cheap. You don't have to do anything to do it. It just exists, but you control it. And uh, I've always thought that if I could just get the contract on selling air, you know, that I would be in great shape. You know, everybody needs air, uh, and they could come, and they'd pay me for using the air. That would be great. I wouldn't have to do anything. Well, that's essentially what is being said of Asher here. You will have the olive oil, which is a basic need for all people's, and everybody's going to have to come to you, and it is very hard work to walk around and make those olive trees grow. Uh, actually, the only hard thing there is is to harvest them and squeeze them and provide the oil. And so, according to your days, so shall your leisurely walk be. I mean, it's, you don't have to go out and till the ground every year. You don't have to plant seeds every year. The olive trees just keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going. And even from generation to generation, olive trees continue to grow. So it's saying it's speaking this blessing uh, that would be upon them, particularly upon their lifestyle. Verse 26, there is none like the God of Yeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. And through the skies in his majesty, the eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are the under everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemies from before you. And he said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, 
a people saved by the Lord. Who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. Now, as this blessing started off with a series of majestic words about the Lord, so this blessing concludes with a series of majestic words about the Lord. But let me tell you, in the second go-around, listen to the words again of what he said. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. These are not just majestic words uh, that make a flower picture. I can assure you that when the Messiah Yeshua comes back to save Israel, the second time he comes, he will come riding on the heavens, just as the prophecy says. Moses is speaking of that final day when the Messiah, the King of Israel, will return to the aid of Israel through the skies in his majesty, literally riding on the heavens uh, as he returns. This is a picture, this is a description of the triumphant return of the Messiah. Where Listen to the rest of the words. The eternal God is a dwelling place. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He drove out the enemy even before you and said, destroy. When the Lord comes back, he will come back with a very, very great judgment. And it will be a destruction that comes from the Almighty. This will be the judgment. Uh, that comes upon the peoples at the end of time. So we have these blessings. As Moses has made the processional up the mountain, he started off with the majesty of the Lord, he rendered a blessing upon them, and he closes with the majesty of the Lord. And to me, this is a, um, a very profound um, outline in the sequence of how our lives really should be. I think that our lives begin because God ordains us to be, uh, that he has appointed us a time that we should live, and that it's by his will and by his purposes that we do live, that the course of our life should be the blessing of our brethren around us, that we should render blessing and not curse, and that finally in the end of days that our life will again be found in the majesty of the Lord with his great return. It's a little micro picture, if you will, of what all of our lives should be about. But Moses is putting upon all of Israel that this, this is the way we should be for Israel as well. Now we come to the very last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And we come to um, the last portion of uh, the Torah. And it speaks to, now Moses went up from the plains of Moab, to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, and all of Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So the Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Maybe we need to stop and uh, talk about that for just a moment, um, about the, what, what we're seeing here at this particular time. If you will consider for a moment, here, here's the man, Moses, 
who lived in Egypt, who lived in the land of the Midianites, who lived in the wilderness all the days of his life, and he's the man who's most centrally responsible for the formation of the whole nation of Israel and the people of Israel going in to take the land, and he himself has never lived in the land. He never lived in the land. It's like an unfulfilled thing here in the life of Moses. Let me just say to you, I believe that in the millennial kingdom, I believe Moses will live in the land. But it will now be with the Messiah that he'll do it. I think there's other people in Israel who've never lived in the land of Israel, but they have a future heritage to live in the land when the Messiah returns. Moses will be the head of that delegation of those of the children of Israel who knew the Lord and yet never lived in the land. Kind of an interesting thought uh, with regard to a future destiny for Moses to live in the land. I'm looking forward to the day when Moses gets to rejoice and live in the land of Israel. But in this physical life, he was not permitted to do so. The other is is the irony of Moses' burial place not uh, being known or located. King David has his burial place. Abraham has his. Isaac and Jacob, they, we know where they're buried. We know where the mothers are buried. Uh, we, know, we know certain other very important people in the life of Israel. Why is it that Moses doesn't get to have a burial place? And the, uh, the rabbis of Israel have a very interesting um, a teaching on this, which I think has some merit. And that is, is that given the nature of Israel and the, the, um, the way that the nation was born uh, by the hand of the Lord being lifted out of a, um, as slaves and being made free men, there may have been too much of the possibility that had he been um, uh, buried in a known place, had he actually gone into the land of Israel and been buried in Israel, that the children of Israel may have, in fact, uh, almost deified Moses, that by keeping him humble as a man, uh, that uh, it prevented uh, from the children of Israel actually participating in a form of idolatry uh, that they <clears throat> would have been too, too, too strongly tempted with. Uh, I think there's some merit to that. I think that another point that should be brought out uh, with regard to that is, and let me go ahead and read the last words of, of uh, Deuteronomy 34, and, and we'll bring that point out. Verse 7, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent to him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel." Um, concluding these uh, last words here of chapter 34, let me tell you about another aspect of Moses' life that uh, kind of comes with the turf, uh, that comes with the territory of being a man that was in the position he was. And that is the axiom of that it seems that the higher that one arises in leadership, the more lonely it becomes. 
the um, in the case of Moses, even his wife and uh, son were not with him in these final days. Um, there were very few peers. The only the only peer he really had was the man whom he appointed uh, later, Joshua. And during his life was Aaron, his brother. Aaron was made high priest of Israel. I mean, this is this is the peer level for Moses as the high priest of Israel or the commander of the host of Israel. These this is the peer level at the level of where Moses was in leadership. And I think that um, I think that people can appreciate and understand that if you rise to a position of leadership before the Lord, that there comes a time when uh, the peer structure gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and actually you become a lonely person. What, what you're doing is, is that you're discovering that the only one there is the Lord. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the irony of, um, of leadership. You, because down at the people level, everybody knows Moses, everybody loves Moses, and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, Moses is a pretty lonely guy. And it is probably fitting and appropriate that when he finally would die, uh, that it would be him by himself. Uh, it's probably uh, fitting and appropriate that he went and it's just him and the Lord left now. Uh, he's completed the task the Lord gave to him, and when it's said and done, it's just him and the Lord that's left, like it was there on the mountain uh, with the burning bush. The um, And I would, I, I say this uh, to uh, somewhat give you a sense of appreciation for those who are over you in the Lord, uh, that you do need to lift them up. You do need to pray for them. You need to be sensitive and understand the things that God is having this man to do because realize that his life becomes increasingly lonely as he fulfills the task, as he does that which the Lord calls him to do, as he rises to the stature as the Lord raises him up, that it's going to become uh, more and more lonely. Uh, for him, and this is kind of the characterization uh, that is given of Moses in these last and final days. He says his goodbyes, and now he goes up, and he's now alone uh, with the Lord for that. Verse ten: Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, and that's probably what characterizes the life of Moses more than any other thing is that, there? in fact, it is said um, by the biblical scholars, there is no greater prophet of the Messiah than Moses himself. It was Moses who defined for us the redemption of God, the Redeemer. It is Moses who gives us the first written instruction. It is Moses who, who uh, teaches us the names of God, who tells us about the character and qualities of God. It's Moses who begins to tell us about our, how our faith began in the beginning. Um, it is Moses who was given this charge and responsibility to do so. And I'm always reminded of um, the words of Yeshua concerning himself and linking himself with Moses, wherein he said to the uh, sons of Israel, the religious uh, teachers in his day, Yeshua said, had you believed in Moses, you would have believed also in me. And... Uh, I'm not here to try to idolize uh, the man Moses. I am trying to tell you, though, that God used him in a magnificent way so that you and I might know the Messiah better. 
And I think that's the that should be the goal and objective of every man who walks before God. The man of God should be the man who shows God to other men. That's the purpose of a man of God. And in the case of Moses, um, he certainly did that. I would also uh, like to play kind of the reverse side of that. If a man thinks that he can know God and believe in the Messiah and not understand the teaching of Moses, I think he's deceived. I think that man is is um, is self-deceived. Uh, I believe that you, any man who's going to be a man of God and who's going to follow the Messiah had better understand the man Moses and he better understand his basic instruction that he gives to us. Let me conclude um, this teaching and the final teaching of the Torah by showing you uh, another place of Scripture that Moses is responsible for. Um, there's a psalm uh, that is believed to be have been written by Moses. It's Psalms 90. And if in your Bible it has it properly printed, uh, my Bible says, just before the first verse, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that's how this Torah portion began. Uh, this was about Moses, the man of God. This, uh, this prayer is believed written by Moses, and it was turned into a song uh, for it to be um, sung. And so I want to conclude with Moses' final words in Psalms 90. If you would, turn there with me and let me read that for you. Psalms 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Thou dost turn man back into dust, and thou dost say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday, when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Thou hast slept, swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we have been dismayed. Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy presence. For all our days have declined in thy fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain seventy years, or if due to strength, eighty years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart full of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for thy servants. O satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days that thou hast afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let thy work appear to thy servants and thy majesty to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, 
confirm the work of our hands. I can't think of a more fitting um, psalm or closing, almost a eulogy for the life of Moses. Moses is asking and he's he's recognizing what his life has been. Although it was 120 years, it is fleeting past. In the end, it's just a sigh. But what he does ask for, the last thing he asks, he says, may it be that our lives had some value. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. May our lives have value in your kingdom, O God. And I think that that's, um, if there's one thing that I have been, uh, I guess I would say the word um, convinced, uh, the thing that has just overwhelmed me, the thing that has just been put upon me about understanding the man Moses is is that, uh, you know, the work of the Lord um, is not going to be completed by a single man. But the work of work of the Lord is an important part in in the life of every man, and every man should be submitted to it. To me, I see Moses as he did his part, and he's going on, and uh, there are others to do. And to me, he's an inspiration. Uh, that that you know, may, I'll never reach the stature of Moses, and and I don't think there will be other men that will ever reach the stature of Moses. But boy, he's a wonderful example to us of a man who's committed to walking with the Lord and he's poured out his life like a drink offering for the lives of other people. And there he's asked that the Lord would confirm and return that to him as a profitable uh, thing in the kingdom. For me, I think that's the perfect prayer for every man of God is go and pour out your life to the benefit of others. And in the end, you ask the Lord to confirm the work, make it to remain, make it to be sustained, make it to last so that it will have value in the kingdom. And so that brings us to uh, the final portion of the Torah. And maybe it's fitting uh, that, that that's what we should do here at the close of the Torah teaching. At the end of every book, it is the tradition of the teaching of the Torah for us to say these words together. Be strengthened, be strengthened, let us be strengthened uh, by the Lord. In other words, be strong, be strong, let us go and now do that which we have been taught from it. There is, there is no additional thing for the end of the Torah other than the rejoicing of the Torah, to, to dance with the Lord and begin anew again. So from this very portion, we then now go to Bereshit as we rejoice with the Torah, and we go to in the beginning the teaching again as to it. To me, it's like a ring. It's like a um, like a, a wedding ring. You know, a, a wedding ring has a definite beginning and an end. But when you look at it, you can't see where exactly where the beginning and the end is. And this end of the Torah goes right into the beginning of Genesis one again for the teaching for the teaching of the Torah. Um, and so maybe it's fitting that we should conclude here with the life of Moses uh, at this particular point. I would like to offer a um, a uh, personal uh, thanks as we come to the conclusion of the teaching of the Torah portion. There are many of you who have received these tapes and um, who are learning the commandments of the Lord, who have been challenged and encouraged uh, to renew your walk with the Messiah. And I suppose right here at the end, I would like to encourage you even as James has said, be ye doers of the word and not just hearers alone. 
You need to take these commandments and turn them into the behavior of your life, to walk uprightly before the Lord, to choose the clean over the unclean, to choose the holy over the profane, and to walk humbly you know, before your God. And I hope and I pray for every one of you that may be hearing these tapes and who has uh, been receiving the instruction of the Torah, begin anew uh, with the teaching of it. In other words, don't just stop here. This was just to get you started. Uh, walk uprightly before your God. Believe in him. In the Torah, he has proved himself to be true. He has proved himself to be a God full of loving kindnesses, to be gracious to us, and to provide salvation and redemption to us. I believe that the Lord will be coming triumphantly very soon. And I believe that we will discover then, and only then, how great the Torah is. Because the scripture says that the Messiah in the millennial kingdom, that the Torah shall go forth out of Mount Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll be the great Torah teacher in that day. And all this was was just a warm-up to introduce you to him uh, so that you might receive the real instruction from him. I look forward to the day when I get to sit under the Torah instruction of the Messiah himself and to truly learn uh, the Torah and discover for example, I just barely had scratched the surface that there's much more to learn from this instruction. I look forward to the day when I get to sit with Moses in the Council of the Elders and to discuss these things that transpired and what God was really telling us and the majesty of all that has taken place. And I encourage you and challenge you to um, uh, look at the Torah in that light of a future thing, your future instruction uh, coming from the Messiah. Lord bless all of you, and thank you for um, listening to the tapes. Thank you for uh, being a part of this ministry. Let, let us close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for the man Moses. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction. And I look forward, Lord, today when we'll get to sit under the instruction of Messiah Yeshua and he will teach us the deeper things of the Torah where we will be able to truly say even as you have said then said I lo I come in the volume of the scroll that is written to me because I know Lord that our lives are found in it whether the Torah has secret codes and it's the Lamb's book of life and our names are written in it from the beginning or whether it's just great and deep wisdom concerning the character of who you are. It doesn't make any difference to me, Lord. I know it's good, and I look forward to it. Lord, I ask that you pour out a blessing on these people who've heard these tapes, that you would minister to them, make the Word of God come alive to them, manifest the Messiah to them, and encourage them, Lord, in the days ahead, that they might be preserved and they might be a people who would see you coming on the clouds of heaven, that they would see you come riding to the rescue, Lord, on the skies to come to save us. So, Lord, we look forward to that day, and we thank you for the Torah. In Yeshua's name, amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.